Good to see you here this afternoon. Everybody doing all right? Good, good. Uh, super, super thankful that you're here with us for the 1145. Um, we've got a Connect class going on right now in the other building. I know a lot of folks are over there for that. I think they had to bring an extra chair. So, so excited about what God is doing in our church. And um, I just say that to say if you're visiting with us today and, and you want to know more about the church, or you've thought about making Solid Rock your church home, um, you can indicate that to us on the community card in the, in the uh, chair in front of you filling that out, and then you just indicate on there that you want to know more about membership, and we'll get you some information on the Connect class, the next one coming up. Um, We're so excited about the work God is doing in our church. Now, we're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning. Colossians 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles and get ready. Uh, A couple of uh, announcements I want to make. First of all, if you're keeping up with our construction remodel, um, we, um, this past week, got the green light from the city uh, to start once again on the remodel. So we praise God for that. We're excited about that. We were on hold for about four uh, weeks while we did some redesign for them, and now that's all been approved, and we're off and running. Uh, tomorrow we'll hit the ground running, uh, so hopefully you're able to see even some, some change and some work being done by next Sunday. Um, if you're praying for that, I want to encourage you more than just praying for the work. I want you to pray for the work God uh, has planned to do in the lives of those who will occupy that space, our kids, um, primarily our nursery and toddlers, and then all those volunteers who will be working in there in just a few short months. So we're excited about that. Um, Second of all, speaking of kids, um, we have a parenting class slash um, celebration time coming up in our church. So this is how we do um, what a lot of churches call baby dedication. Um, So what we do, rather than just bringing our our babies down front and praying um, for them in their future, we bring babies and parents down front and call our parents to make a commitment to raise our children to know and love Jesus. And so this begins with the parenting class. This is where we partner with you guys as parents, uh, give you all the tools that you will need to raise your kids to know and love Jesus and talk about how that works with our, our kids ministry and how we partner together in that journey. Um, that's on May 6th. And then following Sunday, Mother's Day, May 13th, we'll have a time of celebration in our services where we celebrate that commitment and we bring those families down and we pray over them uh, as they embark on this journey. And so um, what was exciting is that in the service before this one, the 10 o'clock service, uh, we got to see a father baptize his son. And um, it was was a sweet moment. Uh, Jason Lewis baptized his youngest son, Brant Lewis. And uh, and that began um, with a parent commitment uh, when Brant was just a baby. As soon as Brant came into the world, Jason and Leah Lewis made a commitment to raise Brant to know and love Jesus, prayed for him faithfully. Our elders have prayed over Brant. And today he made that decision public, and we celebrated a baptism of Brant Lewis in the last service. So um, that was just a beautiful expression of why we do parent commitments and why we pray over our children, why we partner with families uh, to lead the children to know and love Jesus. So that's coming up May 6th and May 13th. If you're interested in that, you need to sign up. You can go online to do that. Go to resources tab over to kids, and you can sign up for that parenting class, uh, which will be on May the 6th. All right. Uh, we are ready to get started in Colossians 3. If uh, you've been with us, you know we're going through a sermon series together. If you're just stepping in, haven't been here, uh, we are going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the gospel story, how all the small stories in the Bible, multiple authors, multiple continents, spanning over thousands of years, are actually telling one beautiful redemption story, the gospel story. And we started this sermon series uh, in the book of Genesis, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, how God created everything good, and at the, the pinnacle of creation, he created man and set him and her apart to bear the image of God. That was the ultimate purpose of the creation of man. Uh, there were three components to that. One, that man was created with this capacity to worship the one true God. 
Uh, Second to that, man was created to live and dwell in rich, abiding community with one another. And then man was created with this mission. Be fruitful and multiply and go have dominion over the earth. And essentially build a kingdom of image bearers for God here on earth. And then we looked at the next week in Genesis 3 at the fall. How through the disobedience and the sin of Adam and Eve, all that God created good got distorted and got marred. And that image bearing component created and embedded in mankind was now marred and and our capacity to worship uh, drifted away from God onto ourselves and our 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 design to dwell in rich community got got messed up and corrupted and now rather than abiding with one another we were keeping each other at arm's distance and protecting ourselves from one another and then we looked at how the mission uh, got corrupted as well and we were no longer living to build a kingdom for God but instead living unto ourselves to build our own kingdoms then the next week we came back and we looked at the promise how The Old Testament stories are all stitched together by this promise from God that he will one day rescue us from all that was was distorted and broken and lost in the fall and that God would ultimately one day gather the nations unto himself and he would send us a rescuer on our behalf. And the next week we came back, the week before Easter, we began looking at the rescue, how the author of the story, Jesus, stepped into the story to initiate this rescue by living a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. And then we came back the next week, Easter Sunday, to, to finish up our look at the rescue where Jesus died sacrificially for us and resurrected victoriously on our behalf. And so then last week we, we looked at the power of the resurrection of Jesus and how that works in our lives today, that those who have trusted in Christ have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and the power of the resurrection is alive in us restoring all that was lost and we saw last week how God restored our capacity to worship the one true God and we saw how God was tearing down the walls of division and hostility between us that once again we could dwell in rich and abiding genuine community with one another and how God reinstated our mission to go and make disciples of the nations and build for him a kingdom of image bearers and so this week we're going to look at this process of being transformed into the image of Christ. And, and what we mean, or the, the biblical word for that is, what is, is called sanctification. It's a big Bible word. That word sanctification means to be set apart. It's a process through which and by which God transforms those who are saved into the image of his son, Jesus. And it is a long lifetime journey and process that the moment we are saved, this process begins in us, that we trusted in Christ. He has set us apart. He has saved us and made us and declared us as righteous. And then every day after that, as we walk here on earth, from that moment until the day we step into the fullness of the glory of Christ, whether that's through physical death or him returning, that, that time span in between is a process in which God works on us, transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. And oftentimes that process is slow, isn't it? Oftentimes that process is difficult and, and hard and at times feels like it, it's going nowhere or maybe going backwards and we wonder, where is God? Where is he working at as we revisit familiar struggles and familiar failures repeat themselves in our lives and we wonder, am I being changed at all? I think a good comparison is to, is to compare your sanctification to watching a tree grow. Anybody ever seen a tree grow? No, you've never seen a tree grow. You can't see a tree grow. But you can revisit a tree year after year and you can see its growth. You can see new branches, longer branches, greater height, greater width, greater breadth. And what what you're witnessing is a slow transformation process as a tree grows. That's oftentimes the spiritual journey we're on in sanctification as God works in us and on us. It's slow, grinding work, transforming us into the image of Christ. The specific question that we're going to be asking today is, what's my part? 
So we looked at God stepping into the story to rescue us. He did all that work. None of us was at the cross. Had we been at the cross, we'd have been like all the rest of the disciples, shrinking back in fear, not there with Jesus, boldly witnessing his rescue of us, right? So at the rescue, Jesus did everything for us. And so now that we're in the sanctification process, the big question is, what do we do? Do we just sit back and ride the wave of grace and mercy and just let go and let God and just trust that he'll change us when he wants to change us. He'll fix us when he wants to fix us. Or is there something for me to do? Is there a role and a part for me to participate in the process of sanctification, this amazing, powerful work God is doing in me? And so we're going to go to Colossians 3 in just a moment to look at this. I want to read a few examples of the New Testament's description of this process of sanctification in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, and we all, he's talking to the church, with unveiled face, now we see Jesus for who he is, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Being transformed, it's a process, into the same image. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. My faith in, through my faith in Jesus, I'm being transformed through a process to look more like Jesus every day. And so is my wife, and so are you. We're all being transformed into the same image, right? The image of Christ, and look at what he says. The same image from one degree of glory to another. So he's again saying, this is a process, Christ follower. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, transforming you to be more like Jesus, transforming me to be more like Jesus. He's restoring this image-bearing quality within us to reflect who he is in the world. Ephesians 2.10, I like the way this is um, laid out for us. Paul says, we are his worksmanship, that, that his is, that's God. We're God's worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this description of being God's worksmanship. He's talking to the saved. If you're saved, God's not done working on you. You're his workmanship. Like a stone in the hand of a master mason. He is chipping away, glory by glory, moment by moment, day by day, shaping you into something beautiful and good and restored. He's shaping and transforming you into the image of his son. You are his worksmanship. And then the very familiar reminder from Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love how Paul starts with this statement, I am sure of this. Now when Paul says that, what he means is, my, my soul is anchored to this truth. I've tethered my life to this. I am absolutely sure of this. Why do we need to be absolutely sure? Because we're prone to doubt it. We're prone to forget that God's working in us. We're prone to, 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 to shrink back in doubt and say, maybe God's forgotten me. Paul said, even when I don't feel like God's working on me, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in me and in you will do what? Bring it to completion. But then he gives us a time frame. What's the time frame? After you've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? No, when? At the day of Christ Jesus. At your transformation, your completion when sanctification process is done in your life is when you step from this life into the presence of Jesus finally and forever or he returns whichever one comes first that's when sanctification is done in you 
So Christ follower, some of you been Christians for decades, 30, 40 years. A, Christ is not done working on you. You're still his workmanship. You haven't arrived. Those of you who are struggling to believe it, you're doubting, you're, you're seeing the same failures over and over again. You wonder, is God still working on me? Paul said, hey, anchor your heart to this. Tether your soul to this truth. He who began the good work in you, he hasn't abandoned you. He's working in you. And it looks like a slow work sometimes, but he's faithful and he is going to complete that good work in you at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, Colossians 3 is where we're going to really slow down and look at our part in the process of sanctification. Do I have a part at all or do I just let go and let God and just coast through life trusting that he's going to do all the work? We'll start in verse 1. We're going to read 17 verses together, so bear with me. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and he's in all. Verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these things, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Now we're going to walk through this passage together, starting with the first four verses, looking at, God, what's my role in the process of sanctification? And I'm so thankful for where the Apostle Paul starts this conversation. And I would say this, where Paul starts this conversation is where every biblical author starts this conversation. Before you get to the do's and don'ts of your Christian faith, you have to start in what has already been done in your life. You have to start with who you are. Don't think for one minute you can follow do's and don'ts and somehow change who you are or impress God or earn his love or favor. Look at where Paul starts the first 
four verses, he calls us to anchor ourselves in two very specific things. Before he gets to these imperative commands to go do a bunch of stuff, look at what he says. Now, if you, if you take verse 1a, and then you add it to verses 3 and 4, it's like this kind of bookend statement Paul's making. Listen to this. Paul says in verse 1, If you have been raised with Christ. So he's talking to Christians here. And then look at what he says in 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, there's nothing for me to do in those verses, right? There's nothing about what I'm supposed to do. All of that has been done to me and for me. It's something Christ has done on my behalf, right? If you've been raised with Christ, I didn't raise myself with Christ. I can't resurrect myself from the dead physically or spiritually. That was done to me, done for me. So if you've been raised with Christ, you have died. Is that present, future, or past tense? Christ follower? Past tense, isn't it? Just basic grammar. Past tense. It's already happened. You're not trying to make that happen. It's already happened. Then look what he says. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Future, present, past tense. Hidden. Past tense. It's not something you're trying to make happen. This has already happened to you. Your life is hidden in Christ. You have died. You've been buried with him. And now you've been resurrected to walk. And then you also, when you appear, will appear with him in glory. Not one person in this room can make themselves appear in glory. That's something God does on our behalf. So before we get to our stuff, the things we are called to do, Paul first says, let's anchor ourselves in this truth that whatever we do as Christians, it has to be anchored in the work that's already been done, the finished work of Christ on the cross and the victory he secured through the resurrection so that we don't become busybodies in Christ thinking that we're somehow earning God's favor or saving ourselves or fixing ourselves or transforming ourselves. You following me? We have to. All of our Christian effort and energy has to be rooted in this truth. And the second thing he says is this. The rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Seek the things that are above. Now, he's not calling you to become a stargazer. Though there's nothing wrong with admiring the stars and the sky and the universe and allowing that to increase your capacity of understanding how big God is. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying go up and look at the clouds. What is he saying? He said what? Fix your, seek your, seek what is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's calling your gaze off of earthly things and fixing your gaze on whom? Jesus. He's saying, Christ follower, before we go any further in this conversation, you have to fix your mind's attention, your heart's affection on the person of Jesus. You have to anchor yourself to this truth before we go any further. Seek things that are above. What's the danger of not seeking things that are above? Well, we seek earthly things. We seek transformation in earthly things. We seek making ourselves better in earthly things. We look at our circumstances, and we try to judge whether or not God's working. Listen, Christ follower. God's working in you. He's going to finish and complete that good work he's doing in you, whether you feel it or not, whether things are going good or bad, right? So when your career path is on this white-hot trajectory, you're climbing the ladder, it seems like the Lord's favor is on you and your workplace, God's working. He's also working in you when you get laid off. You with me? When you're unemployed. He's working in you and your marriage when you come home from the marriage seminar and you got it together and you got this plan and we're both excited. We're just knocking it out. Ephesians 5, poster child for how to do marriage. 
He's working in you. Guess what? He's also working in you when things are unraveling and falling apart and you're in that place where you don't know if you want to be married to that person anymore. You see, see what he's saying? He's saying, get your gaze off your circumstances. That's not how you measure the transforming work of God. Get the gaze off of yourself and what you can do. Otherwise, when failure repeats itself, you'll shrink back in discouragement and say, I'm never going to change. To which the Holy Spirit responds to that statement with a resounding, that's true. You're never going to change yourself. So before we get active in Christian living, pursuing what God calls us to pursue and running away from the things God calls us to flee from, we have to anchor ourselves in these truths. The finished work of Christ. We have to fix our minds, attention, our hearts, affection on Jesus. Now, from here, now God is going to give us some imperatives, okay? An imperative is a grammatical word that describes a verb that's also a command. So it's the difference in me saying to my son, hey, do you want to um, go to uh, get something to eat? That's not an imperative, right? I didn't command him to do anything. The difference would be if I said, son, go to the table and eat. That's an imperative, okay? Now I'm telling him to do something. So now from Coloss- this place in Colossians 3, Paul is going to give us some commands here, some things to do. And he's going to call us to participate in the work God is already doing in us. Look at verse 5 through 9 with me. Put to death, that's an imperative command. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now that sounds like God's telling me to do something, right? That's not let go and let God and ride the wave of mercy and grace and whenever God wants to change me, he'll change me. God's saying, no, 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 come here, Christ follower, do something. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So, because your life is anchored in the truth, of Christ's finished work on the cross on your behalf, and you're, you're seeking things that are above where Christ is, therefore now you're ready to start putting some things to death. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Past tense, right? So you used to be. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now, something's different now, you must put them away. There's an imperative command. Put this stuff away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So our first command in this passage is to do what? This is what we get to do. We're Our hearts are anchored in the truth of the finished work of Christ. Our our mind and our hearts are focused on things above where Christ is. And now we're to put the old self to death. Put to death what is earthly within you. How do I do that? Anybody else want to know the answer to that question? How do I do that? How do I put to death my sin, my failures, that I may revisit them no more? If I can figure that out, I want to know, right? How do I do that? Now, I think Paul has embedded some beautiful truths in what we just read. Before we go back to Colossians 3, I want to look at an accompaniment um, passage from Romans 13, where Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he addresses the same topic, but he introduces an analogy. I don't know about you, but analogies help me, right? Getting a picture of what God is telling us helps me understand what it's supposed to look like in my life. And so in Romans 13, starting in verse 11, Paul writes, 
Besides this, you know the time, oh, excuse me, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about when you became a Christian, you're, you're closer to the glory of Christ. Right? You, you may have become a Christian yesterday, you're one day closer. Right? Look at what he says. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now what he's going to do, he's going to use an analogy of darkness and light or nighttime and day to help us understand how to cast off the old self. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love that last phrase there, make no provision for the flesh. However, when I first heard it, I didn't comprehend fully what God was saying. I'm going to share with you how I misunderstood that. Make no provision for the flesh. Because to me, when I first read it, that sounds like, oh, okay, that's simple. If I don't want to do this sin anymore, I just need, I need to quit going to the place where I do the sin. Or I need to quit hanging around the person where I do the sin with. Make no provision for the flesh in that way, right? Now, that kind of makes sense until I begin applying that to my marriage. So if I'm sinning in my marriage, I'm struggling in my marriage, I need to quit hanging out with my wife? Now, it doesn't work logically, does it? Now, for me, I, I learned this the hard way. When I first became a Christian, I was 15 years old. Uh, it was the first week of summer after my sophomore year in high school. A buddy of mine invited me to go to church camp, and I, and I, and I counted the glory of Jesus Christ and his saving work for the first time. I trusted in Jesus as my Savior, and he began this good work in me, Philippians 1.6. So I came home from camp, super excited about the work God was doing in me, but also super apprehensive about stepping back into the world. Nervous that I would just fall back into my own habits and lifestyle. So I spent the whole summer not hanging out with friends from school, just chilling with the church folk. Okay? I was there every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every special fellowship thing I could get my hands on. I was involved in it because it was safe. Something about it made me feel like I wasn't going to sin anymore. I didn't trust myself to be back in that old environment, right, where I was making provisions for the flesh. And so I started off my junior year of high school, back in the same school, back in the same crowds, and quickly it freaked me out. And I thought, man, this is not going to work. Whew. I'm just going to get back in the same old junk here if I stay here. So this is what I did. A few weeks into my junior year, I transferred from this big 5A school that was running, you know, rampant with sin to this 2A school where nobody sinned. Right? What was I doing? I was modifying my circumstances, trying not to make any provision for the flesh, so I'm going to go over here so I can not sin. Now, you guys know, transferring schools didn't do anything to change my heart. I was still just as tempted, if not more, in the 2A school than I was in the 5A school. See, it wasn't, this isn't God saying, remove yourself from the circumstances, make no provision for the flesh. God's saying something deeper here. When you drop this in context, listen to what he's saying. Here's how we make no provision for the flesh. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the, the reality of what God means by make no provision for the flesh is embedded in whatever he means by works of darkness and armor of light. Right? That, that there's sin takes place in darkness and there's something safe and protective about the light. Now, when we kind of read forward, here's what he says. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. That's a helpful phrase. What do you mean by that? 
properly. Mind my manners? Like a good Christian boy? What do you mean? Well, that word properly translates also honestly. So he's not just saying be a good little boy, a good little girl. He's saying what? Walk honestly as in the daytime. So to walk in darkness is to walk not honestly. You following what he's saying? So what does it mean that I do works in darkness? He's saying, listen, your, your sin that you're participating in, you're doing it in secret. Either the secret of your own heart or you're doing it in the secret of somewhere where nobody else is around. That's why when I, when I was in church around my friends, I felt safe. Why? Not because I was right at the right address, right? But why? Because I was walking in light. I was surrounded by Christian brothers and sisters, and we were walking in transparency with one another. So how do we put sin to death? How do we put off the old self? Quite simply, Paul says here, you walk in honesty as in the daytime. This is what you do. Well, let's go back to Colossians 3 then. Does he say the same thing there? Look at what he says in Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not, what's the word? Lie to one another. This word translates two other ways. To play falsely or pretend. You feel the connection? Here's how you put off the old self. You quit lying to one another. You quit playing falsely or pretending, right? And what's the opposite of that? Walking in the light? Walking in honesty. Walking in transparency. Listen, Christ follower, are you ready to be done with a specific sin struggle in your life? You've got to bring it out of the darkness into the light. Now, this cuts against the grain of the American mindset, doesn't it? This right to privacy, this stay out of my business that we have, this, this idea of autonomy, because what Christ is saying, if you want victory of that sin in your life, you're gonna have to give that up. You're gonna have to be willing to walk in, in vulnerability with somebody. Now, the somebody is defined by this text. Who's the somebody? It's the church. It's the body of Christ, right? So this is not what Paul's saying. If you want to be rid of your sin, then everybody comes up on stage for open mic, and we're all going to confess all of our sins in front of the whole church. Does that freak anybody out? Yeah, that's not what he's saying. But this is what he's saying. You have been called and recreated to walk and dwell in rich and abiding gospel community, a small group of believers who know you and whom you are getting to know. And you can't know one another unless you're honest with one another, unless you're not walking falsely with one another. You want to see victory for sin in your life? Get involved with a small group of believing Christians and walk in vulnerability and transparency with one another. That's how you put off the old self and put sin to death. Now, here's what he says next, verse 10. It's the second thing we get to do to participate in this transformational work God is doing in our lives. Verse 10, and have put on the new self. How do I do that? How do I put on the new me? I just learned how to put off the old me. How do I put on the new me, which is being renewed? That sounds like a process, doesn't it? He's referring to sanctification. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's making sense to me now. I am in the process of being transformed into the image of whom? Christ. My creator. It's what I was created to do. Now I'm being recreated to do that. How do I do that? I put off the old self. And I begin to put on the new self. Listen to what he says next. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's such an important thing we don't need to overlook. What is he saying? 
He's saying it does not matter what background you come from, what religious experiences you've had, whether you came from wealth or poverty, whether you got saved out of prostitution or you got saved as a four-year-old little girl sitting on your dad's lap on the front pew of a church. It doesn't matter. Christ is all and he's in all. He's transforming all of us, the four-year-old little girl and the prostitute, into the image of Christ and it doesn't matter what background you come from. That's good news, isn't it? It's great news. Praise God for the testimonies like Brant Lewis that grew up in church, mom and dad committed early on to lead him to know and love Jesus. Christ is at work in him. Praise God for the drug dealer who comes into our church, who doesn't know Christ, who is saved, radically transformed, the same work as at Christ in him. Christ is at work in all whether circumcised, uncircumcised, free, slave, or barely skinny, doesn't matter where you come from, church. Christ is working in you, transforming you and me into the same image. Think about that for a minute. The 40-year-old female prostitute is being transformed into the same image as the four-year-old little girl. The image of Christ. Look at what he says next. Here's a command. Verse 12, put on then. It's a command, church. As a Christian, this is your part in participating with the work God is doing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now stop. He actually hasn't told us what to do yet, has he? I love this. Paul doesn't let us go any further into this conversation without taking us back to the beginning of the conversation and reminding us of our anchors. Put on then, and there's this extra phrase here where he's like, hey, I gotta say this again lest we forget it. As God's chosen ones, what do you mean, Paul? Here's what I mean. You're already holy and you're already beloved. Nothing I'm about to say is gonna cause God to love you. Nothing I'm about to say is gonna cause you to be holy. That has already been accomplished through what? The finished work of Christ. So any effort that you give towards becoming more like him has to be fueled by what? what has already been done on your behalf. Remember last week in 2 Corinthians 5, we looked at how God is um, recreating us into his image. He's fixing our distorted worship, our distorted community, our distorted mission. But it all began with one phrase. The love of Christ, what was the word? Controls or compels or restrains us. Remember that beautiful word? That God is compelling some things in me. He's restraining some things in me. He's controlling some things in me. And that word also means he's surrounding me. Through what? The love of Christ. Your motivation to be more like Jesus comes from and is rooted in his love for you. So therefore, you're not doing a bunch of stuff to try to get him to love you. You, you follow me? So Paul takes us back to that anchor and says, hey, let's just test the tether on that anchor to make sure you have it loosen that anchor and begin to drift into this idea that it's up to you to change yourself. So put on then as chosen ones, holy and loved. And then listen to what he says. Here's what we're to do. compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, you can't miss this. 
What he's describing here is how you and I interact as a biblical community. He listed five or six things here that you cannot fulfill unless you're living in community with other believers. Let's test it. Compassionate hearts. You can be as compassionate as you want to be all day long on the side of the mountain by yourself in your quiet time. But until you have somebody to be compassionate towards, that compassion isn't being tested. You can be the most patient parent in the world while you're by yourself having your coffee and quiet time at the dinner table while everybody else is in the house is asleep until the three-year-old wakes up, right? And now you've got somebody to test your patience. None of this is possible unless you're interacting with other people, right? And so this historic view of like monasticism and separatism that if I'm going to be more like Jesus, I've got to separate from the world, go be by myself, live in a monastery, live in the woods, live in the mountains, or else I'm not going to be like Jesus. That's a fallacy, You cannot put on Christ without being around people, right? In the same way, I can't put off the old me without being around people, walking in transparency, humility, right? Unless I'm around the community of Christ, I can't put on Christ unless I'm around people. You see that reality embedded in this text? You cannot fulfill the one another's of Scripture unless you're with one another, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's talking about our relationship with one another. Now, I love where Paul lands, and we'll look at that in a minute. Let me give you kind of an analogy to help help us understand and visualize what we mean. So, sanctification from a biblical biblical perspective is the process by which you and I are being transformed day by day into that which we already are. You're already declared holy and righteous before God, and every day through the sanctification process, you're becoming more and more what you already are. Does that make anybody's mind just blow up? How does that work? How am I every day becoming what I already am in Christ? How am I every day attaining more and more what I already have in Christ? I want you to think about a, a basketball game for a minute. Think about a basketball game, and you've been invited to play in this basketball game. And before the game starts, the ref calls the coaches over and calls the team over and says, all right, guys, here, let's go over the rules real quick. We're going to do our tip-off. We're going to play a one-hour game, 30-minute, two 30-minute halves. You guys are all familiar with all this. Let's keep our elbows and our hands to ourselves, make sure we're you know, playing good sportsmanship. And he says, oh, wait, there's one other rule that I want to go over with you because you may not be familiar with this one. Here's what we're going to do in this game. At the end of the first half, When the first half is done, whatever the score is on the scoreboard, that's going to determine who wins the game. Then you're going to take your halftime break, and you're going to come back in. You're going to play the second half. Okay? Now, the game starts. You're like, that's kind of weird. But that means we've got to hustle this first half, right? We can't just, we we can't sandbag here and trust that we'll go into the locker room at halftime, get a pep talk, come back out and work harder and win. We've got to, we got to do this in the first half. So then the first half begins. There's the tip off. And pretty quickly, you start throwing up shots, they're getting rejected, you're throwing up bricks, all of a sudden, like, the other team is getting ahead. Two points, four points, seven points, nine points, 11 points, you know, and then you begin to get discouraged, like, I mean, we can't even score against this team. There's no way we're going to win by the first half. And as the first half rolls on and on, you find yourself further and further behind, and about two minutes before the first half is done, you're completely discouraged. You're just begging, coach, please take me out of this game. I don't want to be the one on the court when the, 
whistle blows for the first half being done, because, right? And coach says, hey, I'm going to put somebody else in the game. So you guys don't know this, this player. I know he doesn't look like a basketball player. He's not like a seven-foot-tall point guard. Um, doesn't look like a basketball player. Trust me in this. He's pretty good. So two minutes to go, player comes into the game. Those of you who know basketball, two minutes on the clock is like having a, a whole quarter in football, right? And so sure enough, the game begins to turn. When this cat shoots, he makes it. Now, you're still a long ways from winning, right? But it's encouraging. You're like, well, at least we're not going to go into the, to, the, to the locker room after the first half completely skunked. We got some points on the board. And sure enough, rebound by rebound, steal by steal, shot by shot, your team begins to catch up. Matter of fact, it gets so close that 10 seconds to go on the clock, you're down by two points. And you're like, oh my gosh, we could actually win this game. What seemed like completely hopeless, hopeless and was, was lost, we might go into this first half ahead, which means we win the game. Then what happens in the second half doesn't matter. And sure enough, Ball's passed in, pass it to this unlikely player, drops a three right before the buzzer, boom. You go up by one point, and halftime, your team is ahead, which means by the ref's rules, you're the victor. Now, go in the locker room, whew, pressure's off now, right? Pressure's off. Do we even have to play the second half? And the coach's like, yes, we have, that's still part of the, we have to play the second half. We've already won, but we still have to play the second half. Now you go back out onto the court a little lighter, right? Pressure's off. You're taking risks that you wouldn't have taken. You're playing hard. You're hustling. You're having fun. Playing with the team. Now it's no longer your fault for losing or his fault for losing. We're winning together. We're having fun together. We're making some shots. We're missing some shots. But it's not the end of the world, right? Because why? We've already won the game. Listen to me, church. That analogy, for me, is an illustration of the story we read in the Bible. Halftime happens right after the resurrection. At two minutes till the half, when all hope was lost and the team was losing, the most unlikely player, Jesus Christ, steps into the game. And he not only turns the game around, he wins the victory on our behalf at just the right moment when it seemed like all hope was lost. And at the resurrection, Jesus secured our victory. Now, we still have to play the second half. But not as though the victory is dependent upon us. Are you tracking with me? Right? Coach is still saying, no, we got to go out and play. God is still saying to you, listen, I have saved you. I've done the work in you. But you still have a role to play. Now, go back into the game, not like the game depends on you, but go into the game as though you've already won it. In the end, when the final whistle blows, coach says this, we're going to meet at half court, and we're going to celebrate the victory together, and everybody on this team gets a trophy for winning. Even though nobody, except for the unlikely player, put any points on the board, the victory has been secured for you. Can we cheer for that? Listen, church, clap. Listen, if you were watching a basketball game, you'd be clapping, wouldn't you? And God says, listen, this is what I've done for you. Don't sit back on the bench and just ride the wave of mercy and grace, expecting your team to get out there and win. I've called you to finish the game. Not as though the victory's dependent on you, but because the victory's already been secured, get out there and hustle. Play hard. Participate in the work that I am doing in you and through you in this life. Listen, that is sanctification, Christ follower. You're not walking through sanctification trying to get saved. You're walking through sanctification because you're already saved. 
You're every day becoming what you already are in Christ. Victory by victory, glory by glory. Two points by two points, you are every day becoming what you already are. Does that help? Now, listen to the last words of Paul because he takes us back to the beginning again and he anchors us there. Let the peace, this is verse 15, of Christ rule in your hearts. Not what you can do for yourself, but what he's done for you. Let that rule in your hearts. Let that be God. Let that be Lord. Let that be the authority of your heart. To which indeed you were called in one body. He's talking about the church again. He can't talk about any of this without thinking about the church and Christian community. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, so you can't can't make it happen. You can just let it happen. How do we do that? By teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why? Because he's already won the game for you. And whatever you do in word, whatever you say, deed, whatever your actions are, so whatever you do in the second half of this game, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why? Because he's the one who won the stinking game. Amen? He secured the victory for your life, and now he's calling you, come into the game and play with me. I'm making you holy. Come participate in that work. It's going to mean casting off the old self. How do I do that? Quit walking in darkness and walk in the light within Christian community. He's also going to call you to put on the new self. Well, how do I do that? Walk in the light in Christian community and extend compassion towards one another? Are we, I mean, surely we're not going to do that perfectly. You're, you're right. That's why he said, when you mess up, do what? Forgive one another. Bear with one another in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been set free to pursue holiness and righteousness, fueled and anchored in the grace of Jesus and the victory he has already won on our behalf. Amen and amen. I'm gonna pray in just a moment before I do. If you're here today and you have not come to that place where you have trusted in Jesus to secure your victory, to win the game on your behalf, to defeat sin and death on your behalf, listen, today is a day You trust in Jesus. The Bible promises, the gospel promises this, that when you trust in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven and your eternity is secured. The victory is won on your behalf. You don't have to go out there and earn it. It's already been done for you. If that's you today, I want you to grab one of our prayer partners in a minute when we stop uh, to sing and they would love to talk with you and pray with you about becoming Christian today and making that decision. For the vast majority of the rest of us who've already made that decision, we've been reminded, oh yeah, I'm in a process of being transformed in the image of Jesus. I don't know where this landed on you today, if it landed on you and just like maybe you've had your heart anchored in the wrong things, things that are on earth instead of things of above. Maybe your heart's been anchored in what you can do for yourself, not what Christ has already done for you. Maybe you have not engaged in biblical community, so you're still walking in, in aloneness and in darkness and you're still fighting these same battles and you want to see victory. Maybe today would be a day to say, you know what, I'm going to get engaged in Christian community. Sign me up. I don't know where you are today, but I'm going to pray for us that as God's spoken to you today, that you would respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful, um, challenging reminder from Colossians 3, God, 
Um, two things that we often do, God. One, we live like everything depends on us. And then when that doesn't work, the second thing we do is we give up and we just try to ride the, the wave of mercy and grace. God, thank you for reminding us today that your mercy and grace is active. It does something to us. That when you love us and we experience your love, it compels us and it transforms us and it calls us to action. But God, thank you for reminding us that as we participate in sanctification, as we participate in you transforming us into the image of Jesus, thank you for reminding us today that the victory has already been won. We're simply every day becoming what we already are and every day attaining what we already have in Christ. God, as you have spoken today, God, would you now by your Holy Spirit, would you guide us to respond in Jesus' name.